the Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Eddie Small. We're in the University of Dundee where I lecture and I'm in the company of Extremist Publishing of Tom Christie and it's my um, job today to ask Tom some questions about his favourite five films. Hi Eddie, thanks very much for inviting me along. You're very welcome. Tom, I asked you to send me a list of the five films in advance and I must say I was quite surprised. How, How easy or how difficult was it for you to choose five films? Very difficult, very difficult. Excruciatingly difficult, actually, because I've, I've seen one or two, it kind of goes with the job. Mm-hmm. So um, trying to narrow it down was a bit of a nightmare. Mm. And uh, I think anyone who's familiar with my books won't be all that surprised with a predominance of 1980s films. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I think perhaps there might be one or two titles on there that might surprise people as well. Mm-hmm. There are one or two I know very well. well I'm not a film buff, but there are one or two I almost haven't heard of at all, so I'm, I'm really interested. It's quite an eclectic mix. Yes, it is, and uh, I think a lot of that possibly reflects on the 1980s themselves, because it was a decade that saw some really fantastic cinema and uh, some incredibly original work. Mm. Traditionally, we, we, in these kind of things, we start with number five and work our way with number one. I'd like to do it in reverse, if you don't mind. I'd like to start with the number one, the film that is your choice, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, I've always been a huge fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it's often considered one of the best films ever made, and uh, certainly you know one of the sort of archetypal action adventure films. Um, and that really came at the centre of a, what was to become a, a, a golden age of. Um, action movies in the 1980s um, it derived from uh, George Lucas who was the producer the sort of heart back to his desire to make a sort of 1930s action serial movie for the modern day mm-hmm. um, and I think that possibly reflects back on the uh, the setting of the film which was in the 1930s um, it's an interesting film one of the things that appealed to me most about it was the way that um, Steven Spielberg produces um, such an incredibly um, diverse cast of uh, characters who are involved in so many really you know, interesting and evocative uh, action sequences. Um, but also what appealed to me was the fact that you have um, in Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones an academic character who's sort of moonlighting as this this action hero and I, I find that very interesting the way that he's able to effortlessly switch from you know the tweed suit to the the uh, battered fedora uh, in one easy move. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it is a film I do I have seen. I do remember seeing it and at the time I found it very exciting. Mm. A great pace to it. It has absolutely, and uh, it never misses a beat, which mm-hmm. is you know one of the the great beauties of that film. Actually, I mean, the editing is, is second to none, yeah. as is the the John Williams soundtrack. I mean, everything about it, every element, um, just seems perfectly pitched. Mm-hmm. And 
other films in the series were very, very well made, but I don't think anything ever came close to matching just that that sheer effortless sense of euphoria and yeah. that, that breakneck pace that the original film has. Right. Where do you see it sitting in the pantheon of Spielberg films then? How well up his list of films should it be? Oh, I think it's pretty well up, I, yeah. I would say. I mean, I'm a big fan of Spielberg's um, work right throughout his career. I'm, I've got a soft spot certainly for films like Close Encounters of the mm-hmm. Third Kind. Um, and I think even when Spielberg produces a misfire like 1941, you can still see the energy in it and the enthusiasm. Um, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, I don't think it can be bettered, actually. Um, I mean, even given the, sort of the dizzying heights of Spielberg's filmography, uh, it strikes me as one of those films that was really quite a unique achievement. Mm-hmm. What age would you have been when you first saw this film? Did that have any... Um influence on your love of it? I, I suppose it did actually. I think I must have been about seven when I saw it for the first time. I've seen it many times since. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's certainly an aspect of that because you watch it when you're a kid and you enjoy it for the action sequences. You watch it as an adult and you see all the nuances and the, the various different references and callbacks that are made in that film. So yeah, I, I think there's certainly an aspect of that. It's a film you can enjoy at any age. Yeah. When I saw your list and thought about that film, I did think of the excellence of the story itself, of the imagery across the whole thing, of the excitement that ran through it. So I wasn't all that hugely surprised. Might not have been my number one, but hey. But then when you showed me your number two film, I was surprised. Your number two film is Before Sunrise. Yes. And that's a Linklater film, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And one of my uh, all-time favourite films, actually, because Richard Linklater, I think, really managed to catch lightning in a bottle with that film, both with the, the casting and with the, the dialogue and also with a lot of the improvisation that takes place. When I first saw it, I was in my teens, and it reminded me a great deal of um, Louis Malle's film, uh, My Dinner with Andre, mm. in that you have two characters um, who spend most of the film conversing. Um, the difference being, of course, in My Dinner with Andre, you're looking at two old friends who are meeting together for the first time in many years. And before sunrise, you're, you're really looking at two complete strangers who find this extraordinary chemistry uh, in one day together. And it strikes me as a kind of film, um, to be honest, that I think most people would love a, uh, at some point in their lives an experience like that, to sort of meet someone, and uh, whether it be a friend or a soulmate, uh, just to be able to strike up that incredible... Um, sense of um, connection mm-hmm. um, and I think this film does it so brilliantly. Yeah, The dialogue in the film, mm-hmm. you're obviously impressed by. Absolutely and and so much of it is uh, improvised, you just have to read the uh, the original uh, screenplay oh. which is Faber and Faber published um, to see the deviation between the original uh, screenplay and an, an awful lot of what's put into that film and uh, there is of course the bonus of having these wonderful Vienna um, scenes as well you know you really get a wonderful sense of Vienna as this living breathing city both by day and by night mm-hmm. um, so uh, everything about it just works as a real magic to that yeah. film. Do you think there's a, a quite an equality between the two protagonists here that they both get a fair share of the of the action in it? Oh absolutely mm-hmm. and and that's uh, I think part of the beauty of it because they are two very very different characters yeah. uh, one an idealist the other one a cynic um, they talk about all different topics and subjects, you know, be them uh, 
ideological, mm. be them you know, philosophical, uh, throughout the film. Uh, and there's a great deal of social commentary as well. Uh, I think possibly because the male protagonist, Jesse, is American um, and his uh, counterpart in the film, the female pr- protagonist, is French, mm-hmm. um, Celine, played by Julie Delpy. Um, so there is a, a wonderful sense of commonality and culture clash in the films, and it's very carefully handled. It's mm-hmm. n- never overdone. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't find two more different films. I would hazard to say mm. between your first two choices, is it a different part of your brain or a different <laughs> you that likes these? Quite possibly. I mean, I think I think they're quite an interesting, uh, complementary. Uh, juxtaposition actually because when you look at um, Before Sunrise it's a film that has a very leisurely pace it doesn't rush anywhere um, Raiders of the Lost Ark you barely have time to catch breath so uh, so yeah I think there, there are definitely films to be enjoyed in, in different ways um, Link later has produced so many fascinating films in his career but I don't think he's ever really beaten Before Sunrise mm-hmm. uh, even the two sequels which are similarly very well made and, and beautifully observed um, don't come close I, I think to that that, that yeah. sense of magic he has in that film it's just a spot on film yeah um, let's move on to number three then so number three is Ferris Buller's Day Off by John Hughes yes yeah so I thought we'd found two polar options now we've got almost three polar options yes. haven't we tell me about this film what does it do for you and why well, interestingly, I think I've written more about Ferris Bueller's Day Off than I've written about any other film, um, be it in the studies about Hughes or in a separate study I wrote solely about that film. It's such an intriguing film because it amazes me the extent this film has to reach people. Mm-hmm. There's a universality to this film that really staggers me because I've, I've got friends in their 20s uh, who watch this film, which was made before they were born, and still managed to connect with it in a way that I connect with it when I first saw it when I was about seven or eight years old. Now, it's an interesting film because, much like Before Sunrise, who wouldn't want to have a day off like Ferris Bueller has? You know, when you get in your friend's Ferrari and uh, you take off with your, with your partner and your best pal and you just have a day exploring a city. And John Hughes often said about the film that it was his love letter to Chicago. It was all of the places that he liked and admired about yeah. Chicago. He didn't just want to show you the locations, he wanted to show you the spirit of the city. He wanted yeah. to show you what the people were like um, and what you know this incredible sense of style and, uh, and energy that was there. But that could be true just about anywhere. I mean, you could easily have Ferris Bueller's Day Off in Dundee. Yeah. And I would like to see that film, to be honest, um, because um, it's it's just a film that speaks to people, and it's a film that everyone I think can relate to. Yeah, and the characters in it, mm. how well do they um, work on you? Well, that's an intriguing thing, you see, because Ferris Bueller, you shouldn't, in, at some level, like Ferris Bueller, because it's basically rich kid does whatever he likes, and yet you can't help but like him because he's he's just a interesting, engaging character, and. You know, you have his friend who's going through a difficult patch in his life, who's asked himself fairly far-reaching questions about where he's going with his future. Um, you have um, his girlfriend who similarly is looking at, you know, what, what does the future hold for the two of them because he's in, heading off to college, she's still in high school. Um, there, there is a, a depth of characterisation that's often overlooked in this film, but I think there is just such a breezy, enjoyable quality to it um, I mean, John Hughes produced some fantastic character-observed comedies um, in the uh, 1980s, including 
plane trains and automobiles, um, Uncle Buck, um, The Breakfast Club, all of which in their own way were excellent. But for me, I don't think he was ever to better Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. That's strong because these are some pretty well-known and well-loved films of John Candy and et al. Yeah. We move then on to number four and, yeah, this is different. <laughs> this is Ladri de Saponete mm. and it's Maurizio Nicchetti. Mm. Why? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've loved this film since the day I first saw it, which was a, a Channel 4 screening uh, late at night right. uh, in the 1990s. Um, this film is quite unlike any other, to be honest. And um, it's, it's very postmodern in its approach, um, and it overplays its hand many, many times, mm-hmm. but you just don't care, because you're enjoying it so much, uh, you just go with it. And that's the beauty of it. Um, it is, on one hand, a parody of Italian neorealism, mm-hmm. because it's a satire of the bicycle thief, Ladri de Bicyclet. Um, Ladri de Sapinet, I'm told, is actually um, the soap thieves. Um, and uh, this is based on a line of dialogue from one of the uh, characters, one of the children in the film. Um, but um, Ladri de Sapinet, because it's translated for international audiences as the icicle thief, as a parody of the bicycle thief, mm-hmm. um, is, um, is interesting because uh, it says a great deal about the film's general approach um, because in a sense on one hand you have this character who um, is a director um, a, a, a kind of parodic construction of a, a rather pompous film director um, who's trying very hard to um, emphasise the, the merits of his film when in actual fact the audience realise he's actually been brought in as a last minute um, substitution for a much more famous director um, whose, whose work is should, supposedly or should have been discussed. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, Nicchetti also plays the starring role in the film that is being produced by this director. Um, and um, that, that, that in itself has this wonderful tongue-in-cheek charm to it yeah. um, because um, he's incensed at the notion that these um, commercials are bleeding into the action of his film, not just because they disrupt the narrative, but because you know he comes out with lines to these various characters like "This is this is terrible. You're supposed to be impoverished and miserable, and why are you not?" Um, things like that. Um, so, so on the other hand, the film operates as a kind of satire on the encroachment of commercialism onto art for art's sake. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it works beautifully. It's not necessarily the most subtle film to have made that right. point, but uh, it does it with such panache, uh, it's difficult not to like it. Yeah. So, yeah, Nicchetti actually plays two roles, I think, in it, doesn't he? Yes, he does. There are many directors that have put themselves in cameo roles. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of well, Hitchcock, for example. Um, yeah. Does it work with Nicchetti, do you think? Good well, enough, I think? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, you, you, you mentioned Hitchcock. I mean, he was so synonymous with his cameos. When you see Mel Brooks' film, mm-hmm. uh, High Anxiety, uh, there's even a Hitchcock lookalike in that film to, to kind of make it look as though Hitchcock himself had a, had a, a, a um, cameo appearance. Um, the beauty of Nicchetti appearing in this film, of course, is he operates both as director and as character. And um, in a way, he kind of emulates what a 
Alistair Gray does in Lanark, A Life mm-hmm. in Four Books, where the uh, the author becomes embroiled in the action of the, the narrative and he comments on it. Um, M- Nicchetti, as director, uh, is full of commentary about this film um, and actually can be quite critical about the characters and their actions. Um, and, uh, of course, there is a, a, a beauty to that as well because, in a sense, you know, you have the director being critical of characters mm. he's written and characters who he's directing. So, you know, there, there's a beautiful absurdity to that. Yeah. You know, there is a theatre to the absurd in this film, which I think is is, is beautifully played, never knowingly underplayed, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, but but uh, beautifully um, portrayed. Is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's part of this in black and white, this film? Yes, it part is. Yeah. How, how generally does that work in your mind, Tom? It's interest. It's interesting actually to see that because um, the main film, because it's a parody of the, the Bicycle Thief, which was a post-war film, mm-hmm. is in black and white. Um, the use of colour is useful for two reasons. Um, firstly, because it demarcates this um, sort of magazine program, this mm-hmm. critical um, program whereby Nicchetti is being interviewed in a kind of inside the actor's studio kind of way uh, about the film. Um, but it is also especially useful in the sense that he brings these characters in who are appearing in colour mm-hmm. because they've come from this world of larger-than-life advertising. Um, and there's this amazing visual clash between these you know, big-budget adverts and then this film, which is obviously meant to be quite dingy and dark and austere. So, yeah, it, work, it works really well on both levels. Mm-hmm. And, and he has such obvious fun doing it. How, how well was it received? I mean, presumably it's a different kind of audience from the Raiders of the Lost Ark that would be going to see this film? Yes, absolutely. How well was it received? It was received well in Europe. Um, it won awards in Europe. Um, less well elsewhere. Um, it had rather a muted response in, uh, in America when it first came out. Um, not necessarily hostile, but rather mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, it has, however, since appeared on um, coursework in America, um, and in film and media, um, as being quite an interesting example of um, how the global village was being portrayed mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I suppose there is an interesting comment to be made about globalisation mm-hmm. and about commercialisation um, in the way that the film handles the topic. Mm-hmm. It's, does it give you a sense of how um, different cultures view some films very differently and others almost universally accepted? I think, it, I think it does, I mean because The Bicycle Thief had such universal acclaim, um, and still does with an Italian cinema um, there is this, this definite sense that Nicchetti's right going out there to make a statement, you know, and he's, he's kind of slaughtering the golden goose in a sense to, to make his point mm-hmm. so from that point of view, yes, I mean I think there is very much this aspect of um, how Italian cinema viewed itself and how Nicchetti viewed Italian mm. cinema um, and this kind of head-on collision with this much more commercial mm. and aggressively profit-driven mode of filmmaking which is what he seems to be protesting in the film. Right. It's amazing. And then, and then we go to Back to the Future with Back to the Future. That's your fifth choice. Mm. It's probably the one I know best because it's had so many sequels after it. Tell me what, what that did for you when you first viewed it. Well, the 1980s had no shortage of fantastic sci-fi. And uh, to be honest, I agonised for a long while about did I choose Back to the Future or Blade Runner, two films which could not be more different were it not for the fact that you know they're in the same genre. Um, why did I choose Back to the Future? Solely because I think it is possibly the perfect time travel film. 
I mean, some people point to the George Powell uh, adaptation of The Time Machine in 1960 with Rod Taylor. Um, but I think for modern audiences, in the way that it puts the characters across, the situations across, and in the way that it celebrates modern Americana, I don't think it can be beaten. Yeah. It's this wonderful DeLorean car that comes into that almost be a cult kind of thing. And DeLorean did sell a lot of cars. Oh, did, yes. would, did that have an effect on it? Do, do these kind of um, added features work? Well, it's, it's interesting because I think the DeLorean had gone out of production by 85 and um, they really, I mean, I think Dr Brown in the film explains that you know, he wants to have a time machine that's a little bit of style to it. Um, in the original draft of the film, they had used a refrigerator and they were concerned that kids might harm themselves by going into the, to the fridge. So um, they decided they needed to have a, you know, a different kind of mode uh, of time travel and this is where the DeLorean had come from. Um, it says a lot about the DeLorean actually because you wonder if it would necessarily have been so iconic if it hadn't been for this film mm-hmm. um, and yet they're, they're making them now I mean I think you can £100,000 to buy a new one um, 400 horsepower DeLorean um, so they are they are still out there and uh, I'm, I'm sure that's part of the film's success yeah. because, just because it was so different mm-hmm. I mentioned the sequels do any of them rate in your mind anywhere near the original? They're very useful as um, adjuncts to the original, I think. I mean, the, the version of 2015 that they have in Back to the Future 2 um, is as interesting to see what they got right as much as what, what they got wrong. Um, and that, that's really useful because, in a sense, it's this very 1980s projection of what they believed mm-hmm. 2015 would look like. Um, and that's, I suppose, just as iconic as how 1955 was was made to look in the film, where everything's gleaming and new and and well-tended. How they deal with the Western setting um, in the third film is also interesting because there is this sense of almost a presentation of the the westerns of cinema past Mm -hmm. as much as of the American pioneer spirit. Um, it is a film, I think, which really celebrates what America stands for. Um, and um, one of those aspects was that pioneer spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point of view, it is interesting to see just the direction that Robert Zemeckis takes it in. Yeah. Um, to say that basically Hill Valley was never entirely perfect, but the characters were always larger than life, and generally there was a community spirit. Right. Where does Zemeckis sit in your idea of... The directors of the world? I have enormous respect for Robert Zemeckis because he's someone who's always pushing mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, I mean, he does make some interesting conventional films, What Lies Beneath being being one of them. Um, but um, you look at films like the 2009 uh, adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, um, which was um, done using um, CGI and rotoscoping and various different um, film techniques. Uh, now that film is just as remarkable for Jim Carrey's performance, mm-hmm. the fact that he plays so many different characters. Um, but it is a particularly if you see it in three D when it was uh, as it was first produced um, and, and first screened. Um, it's a very interesting film because 
you just get the feeling from start to finish, just as he did with the Polar Express, he's determined to do something new mm-hmm. and he's determined to bring something to audiences that they hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find there's something about that that is you know, enormously laudable. Yeah. Even when he makes films like Welcome to Marwin, which yeah. hasn't been as, as well received critically, um, you know, there's still this, this sense of um, a desire to produce something that's just that little yeah. bit different. Yeah. And it works in this case, for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. We shouldn't be stuck in these 1980s. Is that because you were at an age in the 1980s, or do you genuinely think that that was the high point of, of filmmaking? Well, I grew up at an opportune time because um, I was born in 79, and um, VHS and Betamax, you know, home entertainment systems, were, just, were coming into public use in the 80s as I was you know, getting uh, of an age to watch films. So, in a sense, I was really very fortunate to have grown up at a time when I had access through video rental shops mm-hmm. to lots and lots of different films. And um, I I think the 80s have a very special place in a lot of people's hearts, um, largely because of the sheer variety of films that were produced, but also because there was an incredible sense of originality to those mm-hmm. films. Um, I think it marks an interesting kind of transition between the 70s and the sort of auteur-led films that you saw then, films like The French Connection and The Godfather and films like that, and the 90s where things were becoming much more extensively profit-driven. And you look now where everything is a a remake or a reimagining or a prequel or a sequel, um, the 80s were just ahead of that, that movement. These films are so iconic that so many of them have been made and remade yeah. and you know over the years it says a great deal for the um the importance of them and also for the way that they still seem to speak to people mm. when nowadays um graphics are just quite incredible mm. certainly more enhanced than they would have been in these days do you have a feeling that almost hasn't helped filmmaking well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of practical effects in 1980s films, mm-hmm. and it's interesting there's a kind of renaissance in those practical effects because you see films like, for instance, The Dark Crystal and uh, Labyrinth, mm-hmm. um, the Jim Henson workshop films in the 80s, um, they are now being you know, made anew um, for audiences um, in the present day, and they're going back to these sort of practical film techniques, or you're seeing a mixture of the practical mm-hmm. and the CGI. Um, I mean, in the 90s, CGI was a big thing, um, and it's, it intrigues me because I think that's reached a stage now, particularly when you see actors de-aged um, or, or recreated, as was the case with um, Peter Cushing in, in Rogue One recently. Um, you start to see, um, I think, a, a movement now almost back towards more traditional filmmaking techniques, and I find that quite interesting because the 80s um, had an interesting mix of traditional storytelling and also um, this desire to be bigger and better and go for yeah. these blockbuster effects. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, from that point of view, that, that intrigues me. Right. Well, let's go back to where I started, choosing five out of the number of films that even that I've seen, but that you've seen, this is quite incredible. Was it your mood that dictated what the five were going to be? Were you in a bad mood that day or a good mood? <laughs> well, I, I think there's probably something to suit every taste on that list. Um, you know, there's comedies, there's dramas, there's um, larger-than-life action, there's um, films that make us look at ourselves and make us kind of wonder if, you know, what we want from life. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because cinema from my point of view, 
has always been about the human experience and films that speak to us as people. Mm. Um, and I think all of these films speak to me in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, you would possibly be in a different mood to enjoy Raiders of the Lost Ark, for instance, than you would be to enjoy Larry de um, they, they don't strike me as being a logical double bill, um, but um, I think they all have interesting things in different ways to say about how we live our lives and what we take from cinema as entertainment versus what we take from cinema as artistic discipline. Mm. So, so how do you judge a film? Do you look at box office success or is it, does it just what tickles Tom's fancy? <laughs> well, I think it's, um, for me personally, it's what, what works as a film because mm. it's amazing how often a film um, will do badly on a commercial level um, but will develop an incredible commercial um, following uh, down the line um, because the critics and the audiences don't always agree. Um, I mean, I mentioned Blade Runner earlier, I'm a film that had a very troubled production and didn't do well at the cinema, but has been since reissued many times in different formats, director's cuts and ultimate mm. cuts and things like that, um, and um, has since gone on to spawn a, a sequel. Uh, you, know, you don't get much more of a, a cult 1980s film than uh, Blade Runner. Um, and yet it's true of so many other films, I mean, even things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which you know is, is almost critic-proof now because it's so um, such a, a cult success. Mm-hmm. So, um, so no, box office isn't all that big of a deal as far as I'm concerned. I find it interesting if other people have shared the same view. Mm-hmm. Um, but the great beauty of film criticism and film commentary generally, I think, is to find out what other people like. And um, you know, if people take something totally different away from a film, if they love it, if they hate it. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, there are as many different responses to a film as there are films, I think. Yeah. Let me just finish by asking you, are there any genres that you just don't bother watching at all? I'm thinking musicals or <laughs> some of the Ealing stuff or whatever. Yeah. No, I love the Ealing films. Um, musicals less so, I have to say. I think everybody has their, has their own tastes. I've never been a huge musical fan. Um, comedies, yes. Um, sci-fi, definitely. But what interests me most are films that cross genre boundaries. Um, and uh, you see that with films like Before Sunrise, where there's an element of drama, an element of comedy, but the whole thing is really a character-based um, experience, really. Um, and how you perceive it will vary because um, everybody has a slightly different take. So, um, so yeah, I would say any film that pushes the envelope tries to do something slightly different. Um, perhaps as, as what Billy Connolly calls a sideways look on life that's the kind of film I go for and uh, I think all of these films that we've talked about today have been a bit like that they've all been slightly different from the norm Absolutely, Tom that's been brilliant if they ever ask me my top five podcasts I'm sure this will be <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in the top five you really, this has been um, very enlightening uh, your, your level of knowledge and erudition on this subject is is really impressive so thanks for taking the time out to speak to me thank you very much for inviting me it's been good to be here
you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.